we're talking about users who look at an industrial building as a tool for their business, they can pay any price. If someone has 30 machines and they need a 30,000 foot building for their 30 machines, if it's a building that has the utility, if it's got good loading docks and it's got good power, which would be a certain number of amps, like 600 amps at 480 volts, a lot of technical stuff. If the building's really good, someone in the neighborhood that runs a business that's expanding is going to be competing with me to buy that building. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. My name is Jeanette Robinson and I'm Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. Joining me today is Joel Friedland. He is the principal of Brit Properties for the last 20 years. And prior to that, he was the founding partner of Epic Savage Realty Partners, where he oversaw hiring and mentoring over 60 industrial brokers. So an incredible success story because that company was eventually acquired before he went on to Brit Properties. He graduated from the University of Michigan, is a member of the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, and he's coming to us today from Deerfield, Illinois, which if you're not familiar with that, is pretty close proximity to Chicago. So Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeanette. Hi. It's great to have you. And I appreciate that you are putting up with the wintry weather mix like I am in Boston today, since we're both dealing with some chilly weather. But what better way to spend some of that time than talking about real estate investing? My wife just went for a walk outside with a friend of hers. And it's sort of ugly out. It's cloudy and cold. And I said, are you guys crazy? And yeah, I think they are. When in Rome, it always it comes down to having the right clothing. I have learned that as a Texas transplant, facing what will be my second winter here this year. So if you have pointers, I am definitely all ears. Where are you from in Texas? San Antonio. So is my son-in-law. Oh, nice. It's a very fun place to live. I definitely miss it. But Boston has its own charm, so it's grown on me a lot. But anyway, so let's just go ahead and jump in. So you've had really over 40 years of experience, uh, really specializing exclusively on industrial properties. So, you know, one of the first questions that I have for you that I think our listeners will find interesting is in 40 years of, you know, your career, how have you seen the evolution of industrial assets change over time? Well, the main thing isn't so much 
the kind of real estate that it is because industrial is just made up of a bunch of boxes. You've got big boxes, small boxes, tall boxes, short boxes, and inside it's just open space. Years ago, it was primarily owned by a small group of people who owned businesses. They had their own manufacturing operations and they owned the buildings. And distributors, for the most part, were also privately owned. There were a lot of corporate tenants as well. But today, the properties are owned by institutions. I would say that a good 40% of the leased space in all of the markets around the country are owned by pension funds and people who represent uh, those kinds of investors. Interesting. And I imagine that that's got to make it a little bit challenging, frankly, to be able to win deals. But I would assume that with your background, starting off in brokering, that maybe you kind of learned some additional tips and tricks along the way. So I'm just curious, what are some of the crossover benefits that you've been able to take from your early years, you know, as a broker into, you know, becoming an owner and an operator? So I started out in 1981, and that year, interest rates were up close to 20%. Wow. The was a mess. And I went to work for a family. It wasn't my family, but it was a family that was a father in his 60s and his daughter and his two sons. And they were syndicators in the 1960s. So going way back, they were some of the original syndicators out there. They owned 84 industrial buildings. And when I came to work for them, they said, hey, kid, your job is to fill up our vacant buildings. We've got nine vacant buildings, which is over 10% vacant. What we want you to do is go door to door and see if you can find tenants in the neighborhood and have them move from the buildings they're in into our empty buildings. So I literally took them seriously and I drove my car to industrial parks and I would park on the side of the road and I'd walk door to door to door and I'd walk in and there'd usually be a receptionist. This was before the days of automated telephones and nobody sitting at the front desk because of COVID. And I'd walk in and I'd say, hey, who do I talk to about whether your company might move? And usually I got thrown out, but maybe one out of every five or six properties, they let me talk to the owner of the business. And I'd always get escorted to the back corner where the owner had an office the coroner gave them two windows. And so they'd be sitting there and they'd say, okay, what can I do for you? And it's usually, it was usually an older person, almost always men. Very few women in the 1980s were running their own businesses, which has changed a lot since then. And I'd say, hey, we have a building a few doors away and it's vacant. And we'd like to know if you might consider moving. And in that first year as a broker, I moved 37 companies by going door to door and finding tenants and pulling them out of a building they were in and bringing them and showing them one of our vacancies. Wow. Yeah. So what happened was that the family, their name was Podolsky. They had these nine vacant buildings. We filled up almost all of them. And then I needed to make a living. The buildings were filled. So I became a, an agent and I started helping companies as their tenant rep or as a buyer's rep where I'd get a listing and I'd try to fill it by selling it or leasing it. It was really fun. It was pure sales. It was pure relationship building. And today I still have relationships with people from 40 years ago who become my investors and they've invested over and over and over again. And we've become friends and we know their family and they know our family. It's a relationship business. And that's what is the same. 
Wow, that's a fantastic answer. And I very much appreciate it. I think that that is actually maybe still the heart of every business. And even though it seems like technology and automations and investor portals, you know, can pull from those relationships, I can't agree with you more that the absolute, you know, fundamental fabric of being able to grow any successful business will always come down to maintaining and building relationships. Definitely. Great. What a great story. I love it. So, you know, now that kind of leads me to, you know, a little bit more along the same lines of what I was asking, but just a little bit deeper, which is, you know, if you're coming up against institutionals, when you're trying to, you know, secure and acquire these types of assets, what strategy have you found to try to work, you know, your way over, under, or around that? So you've driven by these giant precast warehouses that are occupied by Amazon and by Target and uh, Wayfair and all kinds of other companies. They're usually, they have windows, they're all pro forma. They have windows in the corner and then a big concrete wall and then loading docks lining one side or maybe even two sides of the building. Those are called in, in our market today, A industrial buildings. They've got very high state-of-the-art ceilings, 32 foot clear because they're racks full of products, forklift trucks that go in and up and down aisles. That is not what we do because that's a business where institutions invest and they're looking at, at deals on the East Coast and the West Coast. They're doing four cap deals. My investors want double that. They want 8% returns. Mm -hmm. so I don't want to compete with those institutions. So we don't buy A properties. We buy what are called B and C industrial properties. And those have lower ceilings. Usually they're smaller often brick instead of precast. And they're not the prettiest buildings, although we do have some very attractive curb appeal buildings. Most of those buildings are from the 1960s and 70s, and we don't compete with the same people. And I'll tell you the most interesting thing is we also find our own buildings by door-to-door -door canvassing. <laughs> My son is 27. His job is to go door to door in industrial parks like I did when I was in my 20s. There's a lot of mentorship in our business. So I've mentored about 60 brokers and a number of people who have become owners and syndicators and have become pretty successful in competing with me, which is funny. <laughs> my son actually went door to door and he had a funny story. Uh, there was a street that I said, I want you to know everybody on this street. There were seven buildings on, on a street called Ainsley in Schiller Park, which is right next to O'Hare Airport. When you're there, the planes come in overhead and you, you feel like you can touch them. They're so close. That's how close it is to the airport. And he went to all the buildings on the street and he had one story that he had to tell me. He walked in. Nobody was there. So he kept going deeper and deeper into the office toward the warehouse. And all of a sudden, this giant dog attacked him. Ah. So this is the risk. You know, you, you walk in unannounced without an appointment. You never know what's going to happen. We've had the police called on us. In one case, they carried me out. The, the two sons of the owner said, we're not moving and we resent that you're here. And these two big guys, one took me under one arm and the other under the other arm. And they carried me out and dropped me in their parking lot. Wow. <laughs> so we really don't do like the typical kind of acquisitions. We, of 100 buildings that we've bought, we've only bought four from brokers. The other 90-ish wow. we found on our own just 
by relationship building. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going to show my Texas card a little bit when I say this, but, you know, I'd call that gumption and grit. <laughs> you know, in my former career, I specialized in executive headhunting. And any time, you know, I actually started off in finance and accounting and then was moved over to IT. But any time I actually saw a candidate that had any type of extensive time spent in door-to-door sales or positions, you know, along those lines, it was always an extra kind of brownie point, you know, green flag, because there's a lot to be said about really having that gumption and that grit, you know, that leads to really being able to build success. It's something I think that is a very bold action that a lot of people are often too timid to take. And I think it can really make the difference between candidly those that succeed and and those that don't. So I think it's wonderful that you're keeping the tradition alive. And for those of you listening today, I hope if you're boldly pursuing some type of goal you consider the door-to-door approach it's a it's a fundamental I just think it's great very cool well now along those lines you know when you're going in and you know you're trying to meet with these folks I'm just curious today what are you seeing in the market what is making you know deals challenging kind of what is the state of the market for industrial assets if you will well first of all I'm pretty negative on the future of the market in the near term Things have been too good for too long. I've been through four cycles. And I went through 2008, which was the worst of the four cycles. And I'm a little bit addicted to these economic forecast podcasts. There's some really good ones out there. And the one thing that I see more than anything else is that they're all predicting that there's going to be a popping of the bubble. So I do believe that prices are crazy. And I've never seen anything quite like it. It's not sustainable. So right now, I'm not surging. I'm not going after acquisitions in an aggressive way because every time we try to buy property, the owner says, do you know how good things are? All the brokers out there that I talk to tell me that my values are up by 30% in the last year and a half. And that's probably true. And we're talking about users who look at an industrial building as a tool for their business, they can pay any price. If someone has 30 machines and they need a 30,000 foot building for their 30 machines, if it's a building that has the utility, if it's got good loading docks and it's got good power, which would be a certain number of amps, like 600 amps at 480 volts, a lot of technical stuff. If the building's really good, someone in the neighborhood that runs a business that's expanding is going to be competing with me to buy that building. And they'll pay any price because if they don't have a place to move the business to, they can't make their profits because there's nowhere to operate. To me, a a building, because I've been doing this for so long, I have the perspective that a building that's worth $3 million when the market goes bad might be worth two point seven or two point five even. And for me to go into a building like that and compete with a user, which is someone who's an operator in the neighborhood that needs a manufacturing building as a tool for their business, if they can pay $3.6 million, I, I don't really want to compete with it. First of all, I, I buy a lot of vacant buildings and I fill them up, which is what I learned how to do when I was in my 20s. I still have brokers who help us to lease the buildings. And I can't get higher than market rent. And if I want to get an 8% return, I can't pay $3.6 million for a building that's worth $3 million, especially when I'm worried that the, the bubble is going to pop. And I think it will. And that the same building might be worth $2.7 million a year from today. 
So we're being ultra cautious. We had a building under contract recently and my investors sent the money in because we were sure we were buying it. And we found something terribly wrong with the building during due diligence and decided not to buy it. So I had to send the money back. I've never had that experience because usually there's another building waiting in the wings for the same money. So literally I had to send back 100,000 to this person and 250,000 to that one and 50,000 to that one. And I had to give them the reason, which was we found something wrong and I didn't want to overpay. So we have to be picky. We have to really be careful. If we, if we make a mistake, it's unfixable. It lives with us until we sell the building and then it lives with our reputation after that. That's right. That's right. And I think that having the character, you know, to recognize that at the end of the day, if you're not going to be able to really place those funds into something that you can hold your head up high, you know, by, it's easier, you know, to to do the right thing. It really is. It's literally, they always say it's harder to do the right thing, but really it's not, not when you think big picture. And I love the fact that you do, that you have and you do. So great, very interesting. And I appreciate the update and, and you know, your perspective of, of where the market is going. We also are very much erring on the side of caution. We've always been very conservative, you know, but now, you know, this is a little bit of a of a different, you know, challenge than kind of where we're we're coming out of. And I think, you know, being very somber about, you know, the outlook and planning accordingly is not a bad plan at all. In the worst case scenario is we're wrong and things are even better, right? So we can all hope for that. <laughs> uh, you want to hear something even stranger? Sure. Because I've been doing this for a long time, I have determined that the thing that hurts us the most is too much debt. When something goes bad, we want to make sure that our loan-to-value ratios are very low. And this is going to sound crazy, but we're buying buildings all cash with no mortgages. Wow. I don't think it sounds crazy at all. I think it's impressive. It works for us. I have a group of investors. They're ultra-conservative. They don't want to lose money. Preservation of capital is more important to them than a few extra points because we can leverage it up and have a, a little bit of a better multiplier on the yield. So what I tell them is if you want to invest with someone who borrows as much as they can, I can't help you. But if you want to go into something where there's literally no mortgage and you can sleep at night and there's no bank that's going to call us if something goes wrong, that's what we're doing these days. But we almost need to in our business. It's not like the apartment and the multifamily business. Because we have a lot of single tenant buildings and they're either 100% occupied or they're 100% vacant. So vacancy to us in industrial, in the single tenant net leased world is very dangerous. Vacancy can kill us. Having no debt allows us to have tremendous staying power. We call it the very strong balance sheet so we don't get into trouble theory. <laughs> no, it's an excellent way to to mitigate that risk, which, you know, is is something that we all have to be extremely mindful of, particularly, you know, in kind of the choppy waters, you know, that, that we're currently navigating through and that are, you know, still ahead for at least a time. So very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. Well, Joel, we have arrived to what we call our lightning round questions, which is to make sure that while we love business, there's a little bit of play, a little bit of fun. So on that note, will you share with us what is a hobby that you actually have? Oh, well, I've got two little grandchildren. 
So my hobby, my wife and I spend a lot of time with them. So it's reading books, but not the kind of books <laughs> that I used to read. I'm talking about books that four-year-olds like. So that's my number one hobby these days. Nice, nice. I also recommend building couch forts, you know, when you pull out all the blankets and you build a little fort. And I, I enjoy doing that with my kids when they were little. Now, what is something about you that most people don't know? Oh, I would say probably that I used to play golf five days a week and I haven't picked up a golf club more than twice a year in the past five years. I'm golfed out. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible, but it's it's interesting to hear. All right. Now, I know that, you know, you like reading books that are for four-year-olds nowadays, but the next question is, you know, what book would you highly recommend every investor needs to include in their library? Well, I think mental health is more important than financial health because without mental health, you can't have the financial health. And Don't Sweat the Small Things is my favorite book. I keep it handy. And whenever I feel a little bit of a, an emotional down coming or something's overwhelming me, I read a few of those. It's each, each one of the little stories is two pages long. And that is a great book. Nice. I will definitely have to check that out. Now, one of our, you know, goals for our investors, for ourselves is, you know, we don't want to just be profitable. We don't want to just make money. Yes, that's wonderful. Yes, that's great. But it's really about more for us, at least. And the goal is to build an extraordinary life. So what advice would you share with people that want to build an extraordinary life? Well, I think, again, I, I look at mental health and I, I look at what my three most important values are. And I think that a good life depends on three things for me. Kindness is one of them. Curiosity is another. And having really good judgment is the third one. And I think that if you are kind to people, and sometimes it's difficult, there are people that are very difficult to be kind to. And if you're curious and you ask a lot of questions and don't make assumptions, I think that you can make really good judgments. And I think a series of good judgments makes a good life. Very well said. Very well said. You'll have to actually put pen to paper there. That's a very good quote. All right. Now, last but not least, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how can they find you? BritProperties.com. B-R-I-T Properties. Company is named after one of our property managers from years ago. His name was Brad, and it stands for Brad Really Is Terrific. <laughs> did you lose a bet? How did that come about? We sold our old company. We had to come up with a new name when we started the new company. And I needed a really easy four-letter name. I like a single-syllable four-letter. And Brad was right there. And I said, you know, you're terrific. And I said, that's the name. <laughs> well, there you go. And the rest is history. <laughs> All right. Well, great. This has been very interesting. And I really appreciated you sharing your stories with us. For those of you that have tuned in today, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I hope you will feel inspired and refreshed as you move forward in pursuing your goals. And in the meantime, don't forget to continue to be bold, to keep moving forward and to go build an extraordinary life. See you next time, guys.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>